Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord to us. That's 1 Peter 1.13 to 2.3, in case you need to turn there. So I want to suggest three things to look at in this passage. And I know there are many, many more than three things here, but I want to talk about three. I kind of feel like I need to say that because every time I read through the passage, I see something else. And you might say, oh, how come he didn't talk about that? And sorry about that in advance. Uh, there's just a lot here. So the first thing is related to the mind or the mental, or what I'm going to call the interior focus. The mind or the mental or the interior focus. First Peter 1, 13 and 14 says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So the mind, the right mind, is one that is alert and fully sober and focuses on the grace of Jesus. Alert. Alert might be contrasted with dullness. I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. But have you ever felt like you're talking to somebody and you got a dial tone? I've never had that happen. <laughs> okay, maybe I've been that. That's kind of the opposite of alert, right? Um, dial tone, dullness. Alert is ready for anything. Discipline, a disciplined mind. Sober. Sober is a kind of seriousness. If it's a sober situation, it's serious. But it's also not unduly influenced by outside forces. And so if we think of sober, we often think of remaining in control of oneself, not impaired by things that might control you. And maybe our first thought is substances. But there's lots of other things that can control you. Activities. Relationships can control you. Compulsions, passions. Even anxiety can control you. Being sober means not being controlled by those things. All right, so pretty high standard already, right? Alert and sober. And the other thing that, that we see in these verses is focused on grace, that the mind of Christ, the renewed mind, is focused on grace. It's not simply mustered up. We don't create it ourselves. We don't. Uh, if we did, we could fall into pride. Say, well, I've got a really alert and sober mind. No, we don't. It's focused on the grace of Jesus, which actually none of us deserve. None of us is good enough for that. Now, even though Christ followers are expected to work, 
at things, we recognize that there's nothing we can do to earn the grace of Jesus. Nothing. Renewing of the mind is a theme in the Bible in other places. Romans 12 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. One of the reasons why transformation is a really high value for us here at Forest Grove Community Church. The pattern of the world is actually not to be transformed and not to have a renewed mind. Now, it doesn't mean that no one has a renewed mind or nobody has a sharp, sober, alert mind. It's just that the, that's the pattern of the world. In fact, as we saw those earlier definitions that I found on the web, it's more likely that we could focus on experience or emotion instead of a renewed mind. Transformation happens when we set our hope in Jesus and the grace he offers. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24 says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So part of being renewed in your mind is actually for your mind to somehow become like God in true righteousness. That's what that passage says. And in contrast to your old way of thinking, which is corrupt. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So here the discipline of the mind, what you think about, is a focus on these really positive things. What is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. And we see in this passage that a sober and alert mind is contrasted with ignorance. Ignorance is not being alert or sober, looking for distraction, desiring to be under the influence of something other than God. When Ephesians 4.18 says that an ignorant mind causes the darkening of the mind, and alienation from God and hardness of heart. So part of truly living is to have a mind that is focused correctly, an inner focus, a renewed mind. The question I have for myself, and I want to invite you to also consider, is what does that look like for you today? What does that look like for me today? A renewed mind, alert, sober, focused on the grace of Jesus. Second emphasis of the passage, I think, or that I want to highlight here, is the social or relational or horizontal. So if the first is the mind inside, the second is out, like the social, relational, outer focus. Uh, chapter 1, verse 22 says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, Love one another deeply from the heart. And then later, chapter 2, 1 says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. As I read that, I'm struck by how strong that statement is. It says, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And then just in case you wondered, of every kind. It's like numerous exclamation words there. It's a very strong statement. 
Uh, so I'm going to suggest to you that the pure love in this passage really at least begins with a focus on believers, on those who are part of the community of faith. The book is written to believers, and Peter tells them to love one another. And so imagine them reading this letter in the context of a worship service, maybe even something like this, but probably not in a building like this. And, and they hear these words, love one another. I think it's fair to say this is about people in the community of faith loving each other. So part of truly living is to love deeply. This is in contrast, contrast to, I think, a lot of the world we live, which is far more focused on individualism than community. Um, it's messy when you get involved in relationships and you, and you begin to love deeply. It's, it's messy. Sooner or later, probably someone's going to hurt you. John 13.35 says that the way people will know that disciples of Jesus are followers of him, the way people will know that is because those disciples love each other. That's the hallmark. So um, at times we've talked, maybe a long time ago, so you might not remember, but how the people of Israel were God's display people. So the people in the nations around would look at the people of Israel and say, ah, that's a representation of God. Well, in many ways, those of us who follow Jesus today, we're display people too. The church is display people of God. And you think, well, what is the main thing of the display people? You know what it is? It's love. That's the main thing. And so that makes them wonder. Ooh. When people look at, at me, when people look at my community of faith, is that the first thing they see? And yeah, I think sometimes it is, actually. I think sometimes people look at my community of faith and they say, wow, those people seem to really care about each other. But like everything, we have a long way to go, right? We have a long way to go. So if you think about that as a positive, love deeply, there's also a negative here. There's a thing to avoid. So, yes, love, no, five things. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. So, on one hand, you could say we're to be known as people who love each other, but on the other hand, we could say we're known to be people who don't have these things. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. I think there have been times in the history of the church where, unfortunately, the church has been known for some of these things. Malice. Deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. And maybe there are even times today when we could be known for some of these things. And that should cause us to lament. We should say, oh, you know, how, do, how can we live lives of love better so that we're not known for that? Um, we talk about persecution. And I think it's fair to say that in Canada... Uh, Christian faith is increasingly marginalized. But sometimes I wonder whether persecution is because we're not the most loving. And we actually have malice and slander. If we're persecuted because we're annoying, it doesn't count. And 
I know that sounds really harsh, and I want to say that to myself too, um, but I think it's a worthwhile thing to challenge ourselves with. If we're persecuted for being loving, bring it on. That's completely fair and completely right. But if we're persecuted for something else, then... So what does this mean in a time when malice seems to drive so much of what we see, sometimes within the church and often outside of the church? Yesterday morning, I got a flyer in my mailbox. It was a political flyer. It was absolutely full of malice. I actually felt ashamed that somebody actually seemed to hate this particular political candidate that much. And then I remembered that I've actually heard some of my friends who claim to be followers of Jesus say similar things during this election. And I felt like, wow, what a great chance to live what this passage says. To not have malice. To not have slander. Those two things for sure seem to be very common in days like these. And so I guess I, my challenge to me, my challenge to you, is how do we become known for people who love each other? And people who don't have malice and don't have slander and don't have envy and don't have hypocrisy and don't do those things. A third emphasis that we might see in this passage, um, I'm going to call a moral emphasis. Uh, the passage uses the term holiness, but I would suggest that the moral emphasis is more of a vertical one. So if the first one is in, interior, the mind, the second is horizontal, relational, outward, um, the third is, is vertical, is toward God. Passage said this in three different places. Um, but just as, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. That's not a, that's a hard standard. When God says, be holy because I am holy, be holy as I am holy, that's actually completely unattainable. None of us can be as holy as God, but that's what the passage says. And another place it says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but from, empty, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. Uh -huh. That you were redeemed. I'm going to say that again. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. That long, one of them long sentences without punctuation, I guess. But with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And then in another place, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. This idea of relationship with God, the vertical, the passage tells us to be holy in all we do because God is holy. And if you have a Bible that has references and footnotes, you'll notice that that's actually a direct quote from Leviticus 11. Leviticus 11 is all about cleanness and uncleanness. And so it goes through these long lists of here, don't touch this, don't do this, don't go here. In the Old Testament, much of holiness or cleanness was associated with that external acts. Don't touch the things that are unclean. Don't get involved with them. Don't do things that are unclean. And I think we would agree that 
Holiness is at least partly about external acts, what you do. But it seems that this passage and many others in the New Testament actually go far beyond actions. We just read about how a believer was to have an attitude that avoided attitudes like malice and uh, deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. That takes the sin list from Leviticus and raises up to a whole new level. It ups the ante. Jesus radically taught. This is a radical teaching, and uh, maybe we don't get it, but he radically taught that anger is subject to judgment, just like murder. So, so maybe you would have found in Leviticus, don't murder, or somewhere else in the Old Testament, don't murder. And Jesus says, actually, if you're angry at somebody, it's just as bad as murder. That's really significant. That upping what holiness even is. Um, when the Pharisees of his time focused on actions, Jesus said, even some of what you think is the same as what you do if you act. If you think a sin, it's the same as if you act that sin. So sin is not, or holiness is not just about sin lists, as we see in some Old Testament passages, but includes actions, in, includes attitude. In fact, possibly attitude as much or more than action. Holiness in the New Testament raises the bar. Um, second, our holiness is entirely based on the work of Jesus. And we've seen this earlier in the passage, but here it says, the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Peter takes an Old Testament image, the spotless lamb. In the Old Testament, that was a really important image of purity and a way to, um, to deal with the sin in your life was the spotless lamb. And another Old Testament quote, be holy as I am holy, and he connects it to the work of Jesus. Now, for us, that's kind of almost obvious, right? Jesus, yeah, that's the, that's the right answer. But imagine his, his listeners, his readers, who understand the Old Testament. They understand the picture of, of the lamb, the spotless lamb. And they heard the quote about, be holy as I am holy. But to connect that with the person of Jesus, person who is a spotless lamb is a radical teaching. Um, so in the Old Testament, holiness is often connected to the strongly to the meticulous actions of persons, of people. But in this passage, we see that it's entirely found in the person of Jesus. And we live in a tension because we're still supposed to do the work. We're still supposed to avoid the attitudes of those five things. And we're supposed to still have alertness and, and be sober and focus on the work of Jesus. But the reality is that only Jesus provides that holiness. It reminds me of Philippians 2, 12, where it says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. If God works in you, then why do you have to work it out? And if you work it out, then where does God fit? That's because it's a, it's a tension, it's a paradox. We live in a world where we cannot be holy on our own, but we actually are requested, required as followers of Jesus to try. Passage also teaches us to live life as a foreigner in a reverent fear. Interesting, isn't it? Fear. Why would you live in fear? Well, it's not fear of humans. That's a really clear teaching in the Bible that we followers of Jesus aren't to fear people. So what is it? 
Um, in light of holiness through the blood of Jesus, we live in a world as if we are foreigners, as if it's actually not our home. It's interesting that in the New Testament, the focus is almost always on the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdoms of this earth. Believers are encouraged to live respectful lives, and we see this in this passage, in this book of First Peter. Respectful, honoring, God-honoring lives, um, respectful of authority, supportive of authority. But ultimately, believers are supposed to keep, we're supposed to keep our focus away from the kingdoms of this earth. Instead, to focus on the kingdom of heaven. This is hard for us, because we live in a, world where for almost 1,600 years, our religion has been dominant. They call it Christendom. Uh, Christendom is where, where Christian faith is the dominant thing. That was not the case of any writer in the New Testament. Christendom did not exist until hundreds of years later. And so for us, often, we end up getting stuck in what we might think of as the good old days. And if we could just have Christendom, where our religion is the dominant thing. If we could just have that back. I'm not saying that it's wrong to long for that. But when that doesn't happen, when we live in a world where our faith is increasingly marginalized, we can actually look at the New Testament and figure out how to live. Because the entire New Testament was written in a context just like that. And what's the focus? The focus is on Christ. The focus is on living as a foreigner, in reverent fear. By the way, the word fear is a really interesting word in the Bible. Um, Old and New Testament, the word shows up lots of times. Believe it or not, quite a few times the word fear in the Hebrew and Greek is translated worship in English. So you could say, live your lives as foreigners in reverent worship. Acknowledging God as sovereign. Acknowledging the power of God, not just in your own life, but actually in what happens in our nation. The power of God will happen tomorrow in our nation. Whether your candidate is elected or not. Sorry about that. Finally, um, I think holiness actually includes all three of these areas. So I said, you know, the inner is the mind, the outer is the horizontal, and the upper is holiness. So I'm going to change that. I'm going to throw a twist at you. I think holiness actually includes all of those. Includes the mind. Includes relationships we have with each other. These are holy relationships. And of course includes our relationship with God. The Father. So we live lives where we avoid malice and envy and hypocrisy and slander. And we love deeply. We live lives that are sober and alert. And we focus on a right relationship of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. To me, this is really serious and heavy stuff. And so I'm, I'm really sorry that I'm now going to put the cookie monster back on the screen. Um, sometimes we make jokes about things because they're just so heavy and serious. That's the only way we can cope with them. 
So back to the question that we had at the beginning. What does it mean to truly live? Based on this passage, I want to suggest that to truly live the gospel in our post-Christendom world, a post-Christendom society, may actually be very similar to how those Christ followers lived in the time of Peter. And this was to have a life marked by a renewed mind, a loving gentleness to those within and outside of the community of faith, and a holiness that relies on the person and work of Jesus. I think this is actually the most vibrant, deep, and meaningful way to live. And I invite you to consider the challenge of Scripture as to how this might actually impact your life, your mind, your relationships, your engagement with God. Lord, as we look at your word, we're usually challenged. And we're usually, um, we usually feel a very strong sense that we don't live up to what you've asked us to do. Yet you offer us all of the resources necessary to live lives that are alert, sober, focused on you. Lives of love in relationship with each other in the community of faith and lives even of love with those who are in the community of faith. And lives that completely rely on the blood of Jesus for holiness that is because of your holiness. And I pray that today you would touch my life. Help me to look at this scripture and not let and, and not walk away without it changing. But I also pray that for each person in this room. That as we look at your word, we would not be unchanged. That all of us would say yes. And I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.